This is all theater. This is all just political theater. Political theater. Political theater. Pure political theater. Theater. Political theater. The nefarious, significant, and protracted political, political, political theater for political theater's sake. I yield back. From Washington, this is Political Theater. Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Dick. When politicians talk about law and order, particularly around election time, it's not a new issue. In the 1960s, for instance, law and order was used as a rallying cry to push back against people marching for civil rights and against poverty and the Vietnam War. Filmmaker Sierra Pettengill's new documentary, Riotsville, USA, examines the history of the government's law and order efforts to crack down on those protest movements. The title refers to the actual ersatz towns the military built to train law enforcement in counter-protest operations. The archival footage of the film, coupled with contemporary voiceover, shows the beginnings of a coordination between federal forces and local police that continues today and whose influence can be seen in the political violence that gripped the country from the late 60s on. The documentary is a time capsule, a meditation, and a sometimes absurdist chronicle. Pettengill spoke with me for this episode of Political Theater via Zoom earlier this week. Thanks for talking to, to us about your movie. This is actually the second time I've seen it since November. I saw it, I was at, at last year at this time, I was, well, in a little bit in November, I was screening some documentaries for South by Southwest and I saw it then. And I was, I, I was looking back at my notes um, and checking against that, uh, against my reaction this time. And it's, I, I think it's actually more powerful the second time, like seeing it, which- you know, I've heard that and I think, you know, there's a extreme amount of text happening in the film. And I think um, the second time, when you kind of have a better sense of what's happening, <laughs> right. I mean, it's easier to read is what I've surmised. Um, yeah. And because it, it, and sometimes the, the images are, are almost sort of overpowering. So it's also good to take time to, to see what people are, uh, either the either your your voiceover person is, is saying or the text or even some of the subtext like I don't think anybody David Brinkley was not <laughs> was was not unaware of what was going on he was barely able to contain himself uh, it, it seemed which was um, in some ways almost kind of more heartbreaking uh, to, to to think about that <laughs> yes I, that that you're the only person who's mentioned that piece of footage I think uh, the the whole way the RNC unfolds is fascinating to me of, you know, he does know what's happening, but also is misreporting. And, you know, I'm sure some of that's coming through producers. Um, uh, yeah, it is a, it is a, you know, you have to wonder what would have happened if they were all allowed to leave and go to Liberty City and actually film, you know, yeah. um, actual actions. <laughs> yeah. Let me, let me um, let's, I, I want, I'm curious how, um, how you came to this project. I mean, you've done, you've done an art sort of more archival footage heavy uh, documentary before in the Reagan show. Uh, but then you've also done more political stuff uh, with, with town hall. Um, how did, what was it about this project that brought you to this? Because, and, and what I can only imagine is a lot of research to get the archival images that you got for, for Riotsville. 
Um, yeah, uh, I've I've also made a few short films um, that are all archival, and I work professionally as an archival researcher for other filmmakers as well, um, and sometimes authors. Uh, it is kind of my process of making sense of the world, um, and that includes town hall. Also, you know, I I do just keep returning to these. Uh, invocations of the right wing um, in in sometimes sort of oblique ways. You know, the, the Tea Party film um, Jamila Wignot and I made while started like in their first kind of blush of showing up at these protests. And um, so, yeah, I think just trying to use for this film in particular and living through a, a really intensely destabilizing time um, politically politically and, and otherwise, um, you know, the film was made between 2015 and 2021. It was really my way of trying to understand how we got to where we are right now, how we can understand, um, you know, the intersection of all sorts of different forces from the media to the military to policing above all, you know. Um, and uh, so I first heard about Riotsville uh, its existence in Nixonland by Rick Perlstein, um, which I was reading in 2014. Uh, and he is describing, I actually, I'm really into this, if you'll permit me to read for a second. Please, um, please do. Okay. <laughs> um, I, you know, I read it so long ago and I was just wanted to remind myself, like, that I knew it was, Riotsville was brought up within the context of sort of a fervor for law and order in 1967, but when I looked at it again, um, he is describing the Hughes Commission, which um, was the convened after the Newark riots. Um, and they came to the conclusion that the single continuously lawless element operating in the community is the police force itself. And then their ultimate conclusion was, the question is whether we should resort to illusion or finally come to grips with reality. Um, and Pearlstein writes, the public was choosing illusion. And then he goes into these like series of sort of extreme uh, invocations of law and order that were embraced, you know, in, in the wake of the riots. So, so basically choosing the wrong path, um, which I, I, in the broadest sense, is what I think my film is about. Um, uh, and so he just mentions Riotsville in that sort of list. Um, and I, uh, being an archival researcher, read about it and went immediately looking to see if there's any footage um, and eventually found something that sounded right in the National Archives that I got transferred and when I saw it, um, yeah, it, it felt like it said a lot um, about 67 and 68 and also right now. Well, and, and also it's not just the Hughes Commission that was sort of you know, push to the side for, you know, like, no, we're not going to take your suggestions. We're going to keep on the path of sort of putting our blinders on, but the Kerner commission, which you, you know, which you get into in great detail in Riotsville that uh, here were all these like kind of uh, Johnson men, uh, if you, as you will, as the president described them, a bunch of moderates, um, not people who were looking to, you know, sing Burn Baby Burn on NBL. Uh, and they said, yeah, the problem is societal uh, and structural and we need to kind of reorder society if we want to deal with this. And the takeaway from that from Congress was, let's give the police some tanks. Yeah, and I think um, 
it's a real, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty explosive document. Um, and it becomes even more, I mean, reading that from the Hughes Commission, I think is also uh, just the idea that, you know, the current commission came to me as just as a surprise that a, a kind of bureaucratic body would produce a document that says that white racism is the cause of the problem um, and inequality caused by white racism. But to see it repeated over and over, I think, is also is um, both depressing and, and really empowering to me. It's not none of these solutions are sort of new or that radical, you know, if they kept coming up. Um, but yeah, I, I think I also, the things that have sort of passed down as the, the like hallmarks of the Johnson administration often were paired with this militarization of the police. Um, you know, I, he declared a war on crime a week after the Voting Rights Act was passed. You know, there, there are parts of his legacy that I think have, um, have subsisted in other parts that are, that are really um, inextricable, that uh, have been forgotten um, for various reasons, so. Describe like how you've, how you approach integrating, you know, the, the archival footage, which as, as you said, you know, like you, this is kind of more of your day job, right? I mean, you do this, you know, the, the professionally for other filmmakers as well as yourself with the, the almost like the essay or poetic kind of qualities that are, are a part of this film where yes, there is some um, there's some text where you lay out like this happened, this happened, this happened, but there's also a bit of, uh, again, I'm, this is the English major in me, not the political science major, uh, the, 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 the sort of poetic language that comes into this, uh, these images, some of which are kind of in, they're either absurd, you know, like in, in some ways with the, the, these dioramas, as you say, these like fake, fake towns that they built uh, at Fort Belvoir and, and Fort Gordon uh, and, and like images from, you know, from news footage and so forth. Yeah, um, I, the political science and fine art um, major in me recognizes <laughs> the, those twin um, fine art minor, to be fair. Uh, the, you know, it's cinema. Um, and I think that I was trying to tell a historical story and a political story, but also a, like an emotional and affective, affective story. Um, the, you know, it's that idea of this being an illusion of choosing an illusion and trying to capture that feeling in, in the, in the form of the film, you know, the score, I think by um, incredible, incredible musician, Jace Clayton really heightens that feeling of, you know, are we in reality or not? And, you know, this is a, the riots for recreations themselves really capture a invented reality by the police that they're then going to sort of play out in, in actual reality that touches actual lives. Um, uh, it was really hard to find the balance between absurdism um, and, and gravity, I guess, in the film. Um, and it, it, what came to me and the team as we're working on it is that that absurdity is a reflection of, of callousness, um, that it is, is something that I, I personally kept feeling over and over again in the Trump administration, you know, the looking for some like sort of deeper, more meaningful motivation outside of uh, 
what was often a very crass um, lowest common denominator explanation. You know, I feel that in the footage, like the absurdity is a reflection of, of a lack of stakes, a lack of investment in the communities that are going to be affected. A, um, and it felt important to have that uh, sort of play out. And as importantly, if not more importantly, have it be reflected in the real world. So all of those incidents, instances of absurdity have a real world corollary later in the film, you know, the witchcraft tank that looks like some kids toy Star Wars mashup, uh, you know, a very similar vehicle is on the streets of Miami. And so um, that gap between absurdity and like the, the actual violence of state practice felt um, led a lot of the, the sort of formal choices you're talking about that the poetic feeling, you know, we described when we we're talking about how to record the voiceover, we described the voice as being weary and furious, both weary and, and furious. And that feels like, like, I guess the tone of the film. Was it, I mean, you have a footnote like toward uh, toward the end uh, that said that this this film was made between 2015 and 2021. Um, talk about momentous years. Um, did, did you find it difficult to filter out to to not bring the present in, into the film and just to let the the images sort of speak for themselves about their resonance? Because I mean. You know, in 2014, we have Michael Brown in in, uh, in Ferguson, and and you know we have all all these um, you know all these sort of events that culminated you know so, sort of in a in a flashpoint uh, with George Floyd's murder in in 2020. Was it difficult to just to not bring the present into your into your project? To me, the present is all over the project. Um, I you know. It's funny for me to try to think about the only reason for me to make historical films is to try to understand what's happening around me. And so as the as the as 2014 became 2021, 2015 became 2022, you know, that process changed and, and is reflected in the film. I mean, I don't think I don't think you need, I don't know who is it that needs to have some sort of, you know present tense image to make the connection. Um, and that's partly the role the voiceover is playing. It, it does push you back into the present tense. Like I, I didn't want this film to be some immersive, you know, lose yourself in the sixties um, experiential thing. You know, that voiceover is always pushing you back out and say, what are we looking at? What does it mean? Why are we looking? You know, what do we make of this now? Um, and sort of guiding, guiding from a present tense position. So. Yeah, no, I mean, that, um, that's partially why we put the dates there. Um, yeah. This is made in a context, you know. Um, yeah. Did, did, you, did you get any pushback in doing your research? Um, I, mean, like, I mean, I know a lot of the, you know, a lot of things that it's hard to imagine that they got declassified or, or sent to the archives. Uh, but, you know, with, with time, I guess, everything becomes eventually declassified. But was there was there anything that anybody felt like that, that you that they were not encouraging of you using or utilizing their uh, their archives? Uh, some of the stuff is kind of rough, you know, like TV, you know, networks and so forth didn't always take the best care 
of this stuff. It's ironic that this like weird ectochrome type film from that the army used is in better shape than like NBC's. <laughs> uh, but did, well, did you ever have a hard time getting your hands on stuff that you wanted? Um, no, I didn't have a hard time. Um, a lot of that quality difference you're seeing is um, due to whether I paid for it and how much I paid for it. So that NBC material is fair use. Um, archival material is incredibly expensive and has only, speaking of 2015 to 2021, has only gotten more so, you know, um, ABC is bought by Disney, has its own streaming service. They are really hesitant. I was sort of grandfathered in in some ways with this project. Um, there's a real corporate consolidation of archives. So, um, and I, I like that. I embrace the, I like the bad quality. I, I do want people to think about, you know, how difficult it is to access a public history. Um, and speaking of that, you know, it was important to me that, you know, Riotsville wasn't a, a private, this wasn't out of the view of the public. You know, a lot of the Riotsville footage in the film comes from ABC and the BBC. It was covered in the New York Times. You know, it was kind of, speaking of absurdity, like treated as a lark in some way. You know, the headlines were army defeats hippies, you know. Um, the idea of a public history that's been forgotten or erased or is somehow out of view uh, is more um, telling, I suppose, than, a, than just another, there's endless sort of classified programs in this country that are doing similar work as riots though. Um, and so the idea that this was, a, this was not hidden um, but tucked out of view. And I feel the same about the Kerner Commission, you know, the idea that it's a bestseller and, and um, most of us are not taught about it. No, I mean, it was, I, you know, the footage of it from, from uh, book fairs and so forth was just sort of stunning, you know, like to see that this was out there, uh, kind of like the 9-11 Commission uh, or the Mueller report, you know, became these sort of bestsellers uh, and then, you know, just went into the ether. Right, right. Um, I, I, I wonder, you know, if I, I keep on wondering if people are going to see uh, movies like yours uh, or a couple of years back, there was one about the um, about the Apollo program that used primarily archival footage uh, derived from the. Uh, from the National Archives. I wonder, are, is there going to be a rush on the National Archives because they have such good stuff <laughs> that, that it, you know, you can't get anywhere else? I mean, it is, it really is amazing to me that, um, you know, just this building just down the street, which periodically floods, um, is, is something that is... I, I think that there now people think of it as like, oh, this is, these are the people who uh, mm -hmm. called Trump on, you know, the, the Mar-a-Lago records. Uh, but they, this is the repository of the, of the country's memories. And a lot of these memories, people just have no access to. Yeah. I mean, that's, what's so incredible. I hope there's a rush on the national archives. It is an invaluable resource. I mean, uh, it, it feels it's a, it does us a real disservice that a lot of material is locked in corporate um, archives that are difficult to access, that cost a lot of money to access, that require some level of expertise or familiarity. Um, I mean, the National Archives is accessible. You can walk in. Anyone can walk in. It is um, it is the, the people's archive. And I actually find it very empowering to use sort of state media 
and and remix it in a way. Um, uh, and I I think um, yeah, the recent National Archives role in in archiving presidential records for Trump is I mean I don't know we should celebrate archivists. It's a really crucial. Um, uh, part of this country. And I think because we are not a nation that has experienced a like wholesale burning of our film archives or our historical archives, like has happened recently in Brazil and, you know, has happened in other countries. I, you know, I think we can take that for granted. Um, yeah. It's, it yeah. is almost this fear. Cause I, I remember a few years back, I also, I saw another archival um, footage documentary called Let the Fire Burn, which was about the move, uh, you know, uh, incidents in Philadelphia where the police dropped a firebomb on an entire block, you know, in West Philly. And the filmmaker talked to, it was a film club, I'm that much of a nerd, like that I have a, well, I did pre-COVID belong to film clubs. Uh, and the, the director showed up for an after, you know, um, after film talk. And he said, yeah. Um, and I forget the name of the TV station that where he got most of his archives, uh, where he got most of the material. He says, they were just going to throw this out. <laughs> like, and he, he sort of stumbled upon it. And I just wonder how much of that is going on. Cause the archives is really great about preserving stuff, but like local TV affiliates and so forth, not so much. Yeah, well, I should say um, Nels Bangerter, who edited Riotsville USA, also edited Let the Fire Burn. Um, oh, wow. Oh. So if you want, yeah, an archival, some archival brilliance. Um, Nels is the guy. Um, yeah, it's a big problem. And I made a short a few years ago about Stone Mountain, the largest Confederate mountain in the U.S. And um, that is in Georgia. And in the course of making that film, I found out that the governor of Georgia had defunded the state archives uh, as part of a you know budget saving move. And luckily UGA absorbed those archives. And then, you know, universities are really great shepherds of, of these institutional archives. And, um, uh, you know, I wonder if I would have met resistance trying to get the material out of this, the state. Um, I don't know, but a lot of these local TV stations, you know, are are handing archives off to universities. But yeah, I mean, there's always people reuse tapes. A lot of a lot of news archives are taping that you know, tape supply was expensive, and so they're taping over programs. And um, it's it's if if the film makes people think about the importance of archives, I'm, I'll be thrilled. <laughs> Um, there, there are broader issues, yes. I mean, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. at, at work was, in your was, film, but it was hard to wrestle this out of the archives. It took a long time, um, and it does feel like it's something that we should all have access to. So, especially as conversations about you know police reform and defunding the police are starting to repeat themselves, I think it's very crucial to see the conversation that's happened before and how much. How unnew this is, you know. Um, there's a there's a moment um, in one of the PBL programs where Kenneth Clark, um, Susan in the film, but says uh, it's kind of an Alice in Wonderland with the same moving pictures shown over and over again, the same analysis, the same inaction, in reaction to the current commission, and that's exactly I think what it feels like watching the film. Um, and you know, I think it's it hopefully acts as a, um, a nice, a bludgeon to arguments that 
you know, defunding the police is too extreme is too, you know, we're starting from scratch on that conversation because it's, it's been had. It, it did feel like the, what, what's the term time is a flat circle, you know, that, that sort of keeps, keeps repeating uh, it, itself. It just sort of comes around and um, it, it's, I, I really think that this, this film sort of makes that point that the, uh, the the issues themselves are are almost perennial, um, but the the ways in which we avoid addressing them uh, get more novel. It seems. Uh. Yeah, yeah, it's not for lack of knowledge or or data or documentation or you know uh, it is a, a kind of it, it's a will, a willful ignoring of, of clear solutions. I mean, a few things that are interesting to me is that the program that you see in the film in Riotsville is part of a, something called CDOC, which is a civil disturbance orientation course. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's estimated that I think half a million police officers pass through that, which, you know, if you're trying to measure impact of something sort of silly looking that is based on false premises, like their sniper um, demonstration, for example, you know, that's a pretty enormous impact. Um, I also, you know, have been struck by the fact that in 1965, there was zero federal funding for local police departments. And then by 1970, there was 300 million, which is, uh, I think, something around the 2 billion mark in today's number. So, um, and, and continues to escalate, too. I mean, just, with the, just the grant programs alone that came out of 9-11. Um, right. are, are, you know, were, um, have, have escalated the costs, you know, of, of federal funding to, uh, to local police departments. Right. So. right. And, and um, I guess it was striking to me to locate a, a, an inflection point, you know, a beginning to find a, a point of zero in 65, you know, and it, it not being that long ago, actually, you know, yeah. if it's like a, a reality that's, well, and I think it, you also have a point where there's a the voiceover. It's fairly early on in the film. Um, at this point, discussing this, it reminded me of the of the the lines from uh, *Fair and Loving in Las Vegas*, where Hunter S. Thompson's talking about the the the, the wave came up to the edge and then it receded, uh, and that, that there was this moment where people believed that they were going to change things uh, for for the better. And, and society was on the cusp and then it receded. Yeah, and I guess I would say it didn't recede. What the film shows is a like massive mobilization to suppress, you know? And I think that's, yeah, like we say in the narration, you know, a door opened in the late sixties um, and someone, something sprang up and slammed it shut. And that's what we were trying to document, you know, it's not, not necessarily the failure of resistance movements and, and social change. It, the film documents sort of the building of, of, a, of a door slammer. <laughs> Riotsville USA is being released Friday, September 16th in select theaters and on demand. Pettengill's other documentaries are of interest to all you political junkies out there, or at least they should be. She also directed The Reagan Show about the late president, as well as Town Hall about Tea Party activists in Pennsylvania. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast and to our newsletter on RollCall.com. And while you're on RollCall.com, check out our coverage of movies like Riotsville USA 
on our Heard on the Hill page, and also our coverage of campaigns and politics, and subscribe to our other newsletters, like At the Races. Take care, everybody, and thank you for listening.